Details, 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 right? We all want details. We all need details. Without details, we're kind of like, we don't know what to do, right? Details are important. Two farmers standing out in front of a bank one day. One farmer says to the other farmer, hey, I heard you made $60,000 selling alfalfa last year. Second farmer didn't want to really be rude. He says, well, that's not entirely accurate. Um, it wasn't me. It was my brother. It wasn't alfalfa. It was oats. And it wasn't 60000 It was 6000 And he didn't make it. He lost it. <laughs> yeah, ouch. Details. You, you have to know the details. The details are important. You can't do advertising without details. You can't send out invitations without details of where to be, when to be there, all that kind of stuff. Details are important. Unless, of course, one day you're sitting there and you get inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down an account of the life of Jesus the Messiah, and your name is Mark. In Mark's account of the Gospel, if you've ever studied Mark, or if you ever take a a chance to say, I'm going to read the the book of Mark through, one night, two nights, whatever, you're going to notice that things just happen. I mean, this is going on. This is a holy book, scripture book, right? You might want to take a guess at one of the favorite words Mark uses in his book. Over 40 times, Mark uses the word immediately. So things are happening. Blah, 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 blah. And immediately something else happens. Blah, blah, blah. And immediately, I mean, he's the beat writer. It's just going. You've got to keep up with Mark. No time for details, really, for Mark. Case in point, today's gospel reading that we read. We started off, and we say that Jesus came to be baptized by John. Well, if you're just reading that, you've got to look at it and say, well, uh, who's Jesus? He's got his name in the first part of the sentence at the beginning of the chapter, but now, who's this guy? We know more about John at this point than we do about Jesus, and why was he going to be baptized? What's so special about him? We know nothing about the interaction, according to Mark, between John and Jesus. There's no, oh, Jesus, you should be doing this to me, and Jesus saying, well, no, be quiet, do this. No, there's none of that. It's just... Jesus comes, he's baptized, the heavens open up, and he hears a voice, beloved son, well pleased. And then what does Mark say after that? And the Spirit, guess what? Immediately drove Jesus where? The wilderness. So now here we got Jesus, he comes to John to be baptized. And then immediately he's driven into the wilderness where for 40 days, He's tempted by Satan, and Satan tells him, hey, you know, if you're all that, make these, this rock become a sub-sandwich, and you, know, you could show everybody your glory, you could be good. Jesus said, no, it's written, blah, all this kind of stuff, for 40 days this is going on. And we know these details, right? Unless we're reading Mark's gospel, because Mark doesn't tell us any of that. Mark says that the Spirit drove, depending on your interpretation, led or 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 compelled Jesus into the wilderness, where there he was for 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was with wild beasts and tended to by angels. And that's it. 
This whole season of Lent, these, you know, we, we, we center it around the 40 days that Jesus spent in, in, in the wilderness. And according to Mark, it went by like that in two short verses. And then right after that, he says, okay, then John got arrested, and then Jesus went to Galilee. Well, well hold on, what happened to John? Why did he get arrested? Well, don't worry about that. I'll tell you later what happened to him. But right now, what's going on is John got arrested. Jesus came to Galilee. He starts telling everybody, hey, guess what? The time has fulfilled. Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Doom. Story's over. Time to go home, right? Sermon's over. You wish. Oh, you know better than that, don't you? But it's good to know. If that point hadn't already been made to you, Mark just kind of just goes and goes. Doesn't really give a whole lot of details. And so then, if, if we're going to read this story, and, and others like it that Mark has, you know, we've got to ask, well, what do we do with this story if we don't have all these details? I'll give you a couple suggestions. One, I just think we've got to remember that Mark had a specific his reasons for writing his book. He wanted the Gentiles to know, to see Christ as the suffering servant, one to come. And so a lot of that you know, biographical information that we get from some of the other books, that would have just been, they would have been like, well, who cares about it? That would have been lost to a lot of Mark's first readers. So Mark doesn't get into a lot of the details. And, and if I would just happen to be somebody who says, you know what, I want to start trying to memorize scripture, I would actually start with the book of Mark. Because you don't have a lot of that dialogue that some of the other books have. You don't have all those names that we're scared to say in church, right? You might get it wrong. And, and it's easy just to kind of remember some of these stories. You can memorize it and you can get it and you can start there and be happy about yourself and say, hey, I did something good. And then you can move on to something harder. But Mark had a reason. He wanted the Gentiles to know who Christ was in a way that they could understand. Now, the other thing we need to realize as we're reading some of these just fast accounts from Mark is that while even though Mark doesn't give us details, he doesn't explain things to us, he doesn't fill in some of the the gaps, we know these other details. We have other portions of Scripture to look at that fill in those gaps for us. Use those gaps. Know those gaps. Know what the other stories, know what the other writers have about uh, what Mark is leaving out. And considering those two things, I want to show you something, if we can just look at the way Mark has it, without having all the details, something that we can see in Mark's account. Chapter 1, starting verse 9, and you have your pew bibles they have it broken up for us oh so nicely. But while I want to show you a universal process, if you want to call it that, for the Christian life, that Jesus shows us, that Mark demonstrates in, in Jesus in this small section that we read. And it's a three-part process, and it starts with water, then it moves to wilderness, And then it goes to witness. Jesus could have started his ministry any way he wanted to. Why? He's Jesus. I mean, come on. You read some of the Old Testament 
things that, that God is saying, you really kind of, you can see it coming out in the words. You know, people say, well, why God? And why is this? And God is really kind of saying, well, <laughs> duh, because I'm God. That's why. What other explanation do you need other than I am? And so Jesus could have done anything he wanted to start his ministry, to start, begin his ministry. He could have gone up to the mountain and said, hey, everybody, here I come. He could have gone out to pick the best disciples. He could have done anything he wanted to prepare. But what did he do? He went to John first. What was John doing? Playing in the water. Jesus started in the water. And the water has a lot of strong imagery in the Jewish Bible, in the Old Testament, doesn't it? I mean, we remember how the waters were parted in the Red Sea and the people just walked across, people of God walked across. Remember that? And that actually happened several times, not just in the Red Sea, but several times in the Old Testament. But even go back, way in the creation story, when there's chaos and there's a spirit hovering over the what? Waters. And there's like, it's called the deep. It's just like this. And then we got this Noah story. If I'm reading the Noah story, what does water represent? The flood. What does the flood represent? I mean, unless you're Noah and a few animals on that big boat, you know what it represents. You ever thought what it would have been like to, to like ride on that boat during that time? You know, it had to be stinky. Come on, right? But beyond that, I mean, can you imagine somehow taking a look out the window and, and just seeing everything you've ever known? Seeing so many people you've ever known? That's some strong imagery right there. If Noah's story would have stopped there, then maybe we'd have some issues with that. But it doesn't. I want to show you something. I want you to go to 1 Peter chapter 3. And I'll help you out. It's on page number 234 of these pew Bibles. The story would have stopped with Noah there and just the waters. And you know Peter wouldn't have, wouldn't have had anything to write about because the story would have just been... Utter desolation, destruction, and it would have been done with. But God said to Noah that he would never use water to cut off the people again or to destroy the earth again. And as a sign for you to remember that God is remembering, there will be a bow in the sky. God says several times, I am establishing this covenant with you. Now keep that in mind when you hear this. First Peter 3, we're going to start in chapter 18. Go to the end of the verse. Where, where water was such a strong image of destruction. Hear what it is now, according to Peter. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, 
who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were what? Saved through what? Water. Verse 21. And what? Baptism. Which this prefigured, now what? Saves you. Jesus was, I believe, showing us a model that when he started his ministry, he began with the water, the baptism. That was making all things new. You and I in our baptism do the same thing. Now, according to what Peter writes, your baptism saves you. Now the image of water is life-giving. Now the image of water is something that it builds us up. It doesn't destroy us. It's something that we have to hold on to. When you and I join in our baptism, that's what we do. Whenever someone's baptized, you know, especially a young child, I like to say something to the fact that you know, that child or that person is giving to the community their first act of service. Because what happens when somebody gets baptized? Well, we all open up our hymnals and we follow a liturgy, don't we? And we all say words and we all ask God to help us remember our baptism. And we all tell God that we remember our baptism, don't we? And we tell each other that we remember. We confirm what our baptism does for us. So that very young person or not so young person, whatever the case may be, when they're getting up there baptized, they're preaching to each one of us, telling us to remember the baptism. That it starts with the And immediately, Mark says, Jesus went from the water to the wilderness. Now, this is where some Christians get hung up. Because, you know, oh, I got water, I've got Jesus, everything, so yeah, ooh. And then wilderness, like, I thought you loved me, God. Get over it. Wilderness is a part of this world. The wilderness, whatever your wilderness may be, that's just where that's just, that's just how it is. The wilderness doesn't go away; it didn't go away for Jesus. So instead of maybe complaining or dare I say boohooing about wilderness experiences, how about we realize that they're inevitable? If you're if you're if you're expecting or if you know something like that is coming, when it does come, it doesn't hit you so hard. My dad told me once, he says, you know, new levels bring new devils. What he meant was, you know, you get to a new level of faith, you better guarantee yourself you're going to be dealing with something else now. Whereas maybe you're down here and you're just happy to be alive because I'm a Christian now and yay. You start learning more and you're doing more and you start, hey, yeah, yeah, I learned this stuff. And then you start looking back on everybody else who's still down there. Oh, y'all want me to teach y'all something? See, now you're dealing with a little what? Pride. Maybe a little arrogance. 
Or maybe, you know, you get that perfect job and, you know, the income is exactly what it has to be. It's exactly where you want to be. And God, you are so good. I know you made this for me. And then something comes up, medical expense or, you know, the church asks you to do something. You're like, well, you see what you're dealing with now? New levels, new devils. Just know that. Don't be surprised by it. The wilderness has a, uh, a unique way of really bringing out what we believe. Something about being at your lowest point just really gets you to understand, to confirm, and even to just say what it is you really, really believe. The wilderness, and it doesn't even have to make you do it. It just happens. The story of the young woman who comes home from a date. She comes home with a sad look on her face. The mother says, well, honey, well, what's wrong? She says, well, Mom, my boyfriend proposed marriage to me. Mom says, well, what's wrong with that? She says, well, he's an atheist. And he says he could never believe in a hell. So the mother consoled her daughter says, honey, don't let that bother you. Marry him anyway. With a little time between you and me, we'll convince him there's a hell. (laughs) Gentlemen, I'd be quiet if I were you. But the wilderness has a way of doing that to you, doesn't it? Instead of just being, oh, I can't believe this is happening to me. Why? Why me? Blah, blah, blah. Boo-hoo. Why not see the wilderness as an opportunity to really stand for what you believe in? Some people suggest that, you know, when, when, when we're told that Jesus was tempted, not that he was tempted with sinful things like, you know, to do this or that. Really what he was tempted to do was to fall back on what he was called to do. Maybe. If you and I can be in our wilderness, we can still confess God. What does that say about our God? Hmm? And so then, we started with the water. And, you know, we're in our wilderness and it's, Alone, it's, it, it, it's lonely, it's dark, it's dirty, it's nasty, it's, ugh, I don't want to be here. But we also get a chance where we can move to our witness. And the witness is what God is calling us to be. Go and be a witness to others. And, you know, I, you know I'll just, off the record here, we can you know, turn off the transcription, whatever, you know, if, if, if you have trouble you know, with anger and temper, you know, can you just take the fish off your card, please? It just makes it hard on all of us when you're out there getting mad at people with your little fish, you know, in the back of your car and your peace signs <clears throat> and all this other kind of stuff. It makes it hard on the rest of us who are trying to, you know, at least say, hey, this is what God has done for me. Or at least do like I do. I have those little, um, the clingy kind. You know, you can take off in a, in a second, you know. God. 
But the witness is what God has called us to be. Watch this. What's our psalm today? 25, isn't it? Psalm 25. Look at Psalm 25 real quick. Psalm 25, Psalm 25, Psalm 25, Psalm 25, 2-5, right? 2-5, is that it? Yes. Page 502, the Old Testament. Watch this. Verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs who? Us in the way. What does he do? He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his decrees. Verse 9 again. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. What do our lives say about what God is teaching us? When people see our witness, whatever our witness is, what does it say about what God has taught us? That's a rhetorical question, I suppose, one that hopefully make you think about your witness as it does mine. But we're called to be a witness to the great works of God. Because we are God's people. Like Peter said before, you know, Christ came to, 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 to save us from sin. And that's who we are. And that's who God has called us to be. Do others know us that way? Do we know ourselves that way? Many of you may or may not know a gentleman by the name of Brian McKnight. One year he won the Blockbuster Award for Best Rhythm and Blues Artist. And he made the comment that, man, I hope Blockbuster doesn't take this award from me when they find out how much I owe on my account. Friends, I don't know where you are in your process. Maybe you're back here. Maybe you're jumping around. I don't know. I don't know how many you know, dues you have, but I want you to know this. God is there. God's love is there. You are a child of God. That means God is there with you. That means God loves you. What began in the water, may it strengthen you in your wilderness, and may it empower you in your witness. In Jesus' name.